Hello and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming directly to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library on Wayne State University's campus in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. How you doing? My name is Dan Galadner and I will be your host today. And we are here as well with Troy Eller English. How you doing, Troy? I'm just great. How are you? Excellent, because you know what? We get to hear something that you've done here at the Archive. Today we're going to feature an interview Troy did recently with Alexis Jetter, who is a journalist, lecturer at Dartmouth College, and daughter of one of the founding members of the Society of Women Engineers, which we have their collection here. But first, Troy, please tell us who and what is the Society of Women Engineers. Oh, sure. Swee the Society of Women Engineers. It was founded in the United States in 1950 as a nonprofit educational organization to encourage women to pursue engineering and to support them throughout their careers. All right, so they they were organized in the 1950s, and this is post-World War II, which we know when men were returning from war, uh, those women who were working in the factories, working all over the place, were soon to be replaced by the men coming back. But there was enough women engineers to create this organization, I assume. So were there a lot? Um, were they welcomed into these organizations, these uh, places to work? Well. <laughs> <laughs> really? About two-tenths of one percent of all the engineers <laughs> in the United States. Um, but... That number was growing more rapidly than it had been before the war. But it was tough getting into the profession. Some engineering schools, particularly the elite ones, didn't even allow women to enroll in engineering courses. So women who did receive engineering degrees, you know, they had to convince someone to actually hire them. And a study published in the Industrial Relations News in 1961 found that 81% of male bosses would not hire a woman engineer. Hmm. And, you know, if they did find a job, they were more or less expected to retire when they had children. So it wasn't easy, but a growing number of women pushed through these obstacles because they thought engineering was interesting and challenging and exciting. And because engineering gave them personal and financial freedom. And not only did they want that for themselves, but they also wanted all those opportunities for other women. So basically, SWE was founded in 1950 for women to network, figure out how to get into higher ed, how to get jobs, and support each other, right? Exactly. And one of those founding members was Evelyn Jetter, who at that time was an electrical engineer at the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. And I interviewed her daughter, Alexis Jetter, a couple of months ago. She was at the archives soaking up information from Swee's archival collections while she's working on a book about her mother's life and career. Did you get some good stories? Oh, such good stories. <laughs> you know, she grew up in New York City and New Jersey around all of these really amazing women engineers who were businesswomen. And they were into arts and culture and they were solving the world's problems. She has really personal insights into what these early members of SWE were like, and also how their professional lives and their personal lives meshed together and sometimes collided together. And, you know, I only know these women from the paper that they left behind in the archives. And so Alexis's memories and her research have really helped me to better understand their lives and their motivations and their careers. Excellent. All right, let's get going. (laughs) 
been in contact for a couple of years. Oh, more than a couple, yes. I think. <laughs> and I was uh, hoping that you could share with me what what your project's about. Why have you been here? <laughs> <laughs> well, this all started as my master's thesis when I was going to Columbia Journalism School in uh, fall of 85 to spring of 86. And my mother had died um, six years earlier. And I had to pick a topic and I thought, boy, I've always wanted to know if my mom's work at the Atomic Energy Commission, where she worked as an electrical engineer, uh, exposed her to radiation that had anything to do with her early death at 52. So my mom was one of the co-founders of the Society of Women Engineers. Um, she was then going to night school at Cooper Union and working at the Atomic Energy Commission while she got her engineering degree. And she worked in the health and safety labs where she monitored fallout from the nuclear tests. But they also looked to see how much strontium was in milk, you know, from the fallout. You know, there were uh, wild things happening with some of the nuclear tests where it entered the atmosphere but stayed in the atmosphere, traveled across the country, came down in the form of what they called hot snow, radioactive snow. I wanted to try to know my mom's story. And what I wrote at that point was a magazine article about whether her exposure to radiation had um, had any role in her death, which I was never able to resolve, but I, I found some pretty interesting clues. As I was getting involved with trying to figure out what exposure she had, I also got more involved with thinking about who was she as a young woman? What was she doing? She was going to school at night. She was working at this cutting edge, you know, uh, field during the day. She was founding the Society of Women Engineers. Um, and I just wanted to know more about that. Now what I'm writing is a book and it's 30 years later. You know, I've been doing these interviews for 30 years, which is, for some of your listeners, would be astonishing because they're not even 30. Um, it's changed because now I'm not just a daughter. I'm a mother. I now look at the things she told me and the things she did, and I realize I understand it much better. And it's now it's not journalism per se. It's really um, a memoir, a mother-daughter memoir. Mm -hmm. My mother, Evelyn Fowler... Um, Mickey Gurla, Miriam Gurla, to you guys. Um, B. Hicks was a very close friend of my mom. She wasn't part of that group. Um, I think her name was Mildred Parrott. There were a few of the Medwins. There were a few other people. They all had kids. They were modern. I mean, they were part of a generation of children of immigrants who really embraced modernism and you know, music and culture and books and plays, they were just thirsty for all of it. And I think SWE came out of that. These were women who just wanted everything. And they found in each other a real, it was friendship. It wasn't just collegiality. And, uh, you know, the world of science was opening up right as these young women were entering the workforce. There were other pressures on them, of course. Uh, my mother waited six years to have children after she got married. Um, all of them, with a few exceptions, were balancing that. 
and they wanted to be really scientific mothers too. I mean, Mickey Gurla would send my mom these mimeograph sheets of how to sort of, you know, they were kind of like time and motion studies, really. They really were an outgrowth of Lillian Galbraith's, you know, time and motion studies. And my mom used lab composition books to sort of time out how much peaches she was giving, you know. <laughs> she tried to do it like almost scientific notation. It was hilarious, you know. They wanted to bring these ideas of rationality and science and um, efficiency, but not in a cold way. Mm-hmm. I think that core of friendship, they were friends as women um, with a common vision they were friends as mothers who wanted to retain um, their work, their their scientific exploration. At the same time, they were fascinated with their children and um, brought some of that same excitement and energy. I think they were juggling a lot at a time when juggling was much more difficult than it is now, and it's still almost impossible. You mentioned B. Hicks, yeah. and who was the first president of SWE. She became the the owner and of her father's engineering company. She was a CEO of a company of pretty much entirely men. Um, she was founding the Society of Women Engineers. She was being sent on overseas assignments. And I know her through Swee's archives. I have a very curated vision of her. Because you knew her personally, and in some of the research that you have been doing, you've provided me with a lot of information <laughs> of the B. Hicks that Swee didn't know. Could you share some of the information sure. that you have found out about her sure. or that you remember about her personally? Well, I'll start with what I remember about her. Um, and I should add that my mom had four children, you know, so that was one of the many things she was doing. My mom and B. Uh, came together, I believe, really to, as, around the time of the founding of the SWE. I don't, know, um, I don't know their origin story, but I know that very quickly they became um, close. And by close, I don't necessarily mean like uh, confidants, um, but they admired each other. And uh, I think my mom looked up to B in some ways. I think B was, uh, I don't know, five to ten years older. Uh, they probably made a funny-looking pair because while they were both elegant, my mother was very tall and B was quite small. Although in my childhood memories, she loomed large. So B was a very elegant woman. Um, she came across as sort of icy. Uh, again, I knew her when I was a child. If I met her as an adult, I might have seen her a little differently. But she definitely seemed um, austere, refined, uh, stern. She was very beautiful, although it's funny you say curated. Um, she was very conscious of how she looked. And she was also very waspy, right? Um, there were all these magazines that did little features on my mom and also on B. There are these beautiful career women. You know, B was very, she was sort of the, the new woman of the 1940s and 50s. She and her husband each cooked dinner for each other. They traveled around the world. My mom was the other new woman of the 40s, 50s, 60s. She had four children. Uh, she had top secret security. She was only the only mom on the block with the top secret security clearance. So they were sort of the um, mirror images of 
this very exciting new woman and they dressed well. And I, you know, we've talked about how SWE, Sweetie you, they always mm-hmm. called it SWE, promoted that image of, uh, you know, sort of the glamorous career woman. And the magazines that featured them were Mademoiselle and Charm and that sort of thing. And and it was interesting. One of the things I found out was that her name wasn't Hicks to begin with. It was Hickstein. She wasn't Jewish. But I, I, I've wondered whether she worried that people might think that she was. What I know from her childhood, there was an interview done. She didn't have children, but she was close with her nephew and with her cousin, I think, who was an artist who drew posters for Broadway musicals. And in the transcript that someone did with that cousin, um, actually, although she was born into a family of, you know, sort of middle class, her father was an engineer and an inventor, they lost all of their savings Uh, I guess during the Depression, and they were homeless. They lived in a field. I think it was either Patterson, New Jersey, or Passaic, New Jersey. I get them confused. Um, (laughs) In a tent. And the father continued to work on his designs, and one of the designs that would ultimately make him successful is something called a either a low water cutoff or a high water cutoff, but it was a it was something that regulated water flow in large buildings, large plants. So when he got back on his feet, uh, and the story is, you know, whenever they drove through the city, New York City, and she asked, you know, as a little kid, you know, who who built those bridges and um, you know, she was always very interested in that. And I've seen different stories where her mother said engineers built it or her father did. But at any rate, she had got it in her mind. She was very good at math, science, physics. She was natural. She was brilliant, actually. Very clean mind. Both my mother and B had these very uh, beautiful minds. And um, so sort of to clarify, B worked her way up in her father's factory, in her father's engineering firm. It was always clear that she was going to inherit it. There was an uncle who was a ne'er-do-well, who was sort of the manager, and there was, I think, a turf fight, but it became pretty clear that she had the brains and she had the chutzpah. She would never have called it that. (laughs) Um, The steeliness, I guess. But, uh, you know, why make it bad? She had Mm -hmm. the ambition. She had the ability. She was a businesswoman, too, by the way. She wasn't just an engineer and a scientist. So she did take over the company, but her father made her do everything, you know, from the real, you know, the manufacturing of the steel parts, you know. And she knew all the men. They were all men who worked in that firm and not just engineers. I mean, actually, there weren't many engineers. It was her and her father. There's probably more I can tell you about B, but her her nephew, who she was very close to, called her Aunt Nunu or Nuni or something like that. I mean, he wasn't afraid of her at all, and she took a real interest in him. So I, I consider her a paradox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and she basically, when my mother left the um, Atomic Energy Commission in 1953 to have my brother, first of four kids, she hired my mom. And my mom was going to night school while doing everything else, and she had top-secret security clearance from the U.S. military. So she was working in our basement on top-secret military projects with B, and in B's promotional material for her company, it said that their, you know, their in-house physicist was Evelyn Jetter. So I think their friendship also was a 
it was an intellectual partnership, but it was also a business relationship. I, I mentioned this to you earlier, and going through their correspondence, it's really kind of fun because B was still, actually, I think she lived in Montclair or someplace like that, or Bloomington, right across the river from the city. And my mother really missed the city, and and, and B would send her correspondences that often had two things. It would have a pull sheet from the New Yorker with circled plays and concerts she thought my mom and her could go to. Um, and there would also be uh, graph paper with, um, we're not even always graph paper, sometimes stationary. B traveled a lot, so there would be stationary from different hotels from all over the place. And she worked out this uh, mathematical uh, formula would usually run several lines and she'd say, Ev, would you check this? I think it's right. Because they were working on designing spy satellites for the precursor to NASA and they had to measure out pressure, temperature, uh, precipitation to make sure that, well, what do I know? But to make <laughs> sure that they worked right, you know? And uh, I remember uh, Charm Magazine and I was down there in the basement with her. That's a picture, by the way, of my mom in her lab coat in the basement, you know, designing whatever spy satellites. And there's little me, you know, on the side. I'm sure asking her when she'll come upstairs. She's doing something very interesting with her hands. I could never tell what it was. Um, I thought she was explaining something to the photographer or to the reporter. And finally, one time recently, I just got out of magnifying glass and I looked at it. And it wasn't anything like that. She had strings around each of her fingers, and she was doing a cat's cradle <laughs> to keep me, you know, content and occupied. <laughs> and that was such a revelation to me because I have always thought, you know, we've talked a little bit about the downside of having a mother who is like, you know, she's a scientist, she was an engineer, she was a physicist, she was an inventor. She worked crazy hours because that was her nature. Uh, I think it is also something about being a woman in a man's field. I think it really was her nature, though. <laughs> and um, I always felt, even though she stayed home with us for 12 years, I mean, that seemed like a really long time to her, and then tried to reenter the workforce as, a, as an engineer in those 12 years from 53 to 65. And that's amazing, right? I mean, she went from being an electrical engineer to being a physicist to being a solid-state engineer and physicist, you know, and she came out of 12 years of what most people would consider, you know, out in the pasture. I mean, she was getting her some graduate classes, and she almost got her PhD, actually. And then she re-entered the workforce and started designing transistors for, you know, she designed the first transistor for the solid-state ignition system in cars. She did work for, I think, something like the lunar module. But... I, I know that I felt and my siblings felt that we missed out on some of the time with her. And she was a very magical person. And she took us whitewater rafting and canoeing and, you know, all kinds of stuff. When I saw that string around her fingers and I realized that that was all about being a mom and that the balance shifted for me and I realized that she really was trying to balance it in a crazy way. You've been knee-deep in the, in the news clippings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, what have you found, or what are your thoughts or impressions having been knee-deep in these news clippings documenting 
um, women engineers and Swedes activities like 1940s through 1960s, 1970s. Yeah. What what uh, have you seen that's sort of helping you piece together your mom's place within SWE and within the world of engineering? Or well, a, a lot actually. It's it's. Uh, so let me try to break it down a little bit. One is, you know, your records went back to the 1910s and 20s, which was amazing mm-hmm. to me. And I ended up going back to that. I mean, I'm a journalist, but I'm also a historian and I'm kind of a snoop and I want to know everything. So so that was fascinating. I mean, there wasn't a wealth of material, but it told me that as much of a pioneer as my mom was, and she was in so many ways, just how many pioneers there were and rural areas, city areas, you know. Um, and also, you know, it's funny. I just found myself laughing a lot because this this trope, you know, about they could be feminine and they and they had to be feminine and, you know, petticoats and puff and the, you know, Miss Universe and this and that and um, it would be easy to say, oh, these male reporters, you know. But actually, largely, they're women reporters. And I know because I teach the history of journalism, this is for the women's pages. But interestingly, because they were relegated to the women's pages, they had a lot of room. A lot of these articles were much longer than they would have been if they were for general, should I, I should say, male consumption. So there's a wealth of information. There's lots of great photographs. And... Um, I mean, reporters had a lot of fun with this idea of, you know, girl engineers or engineeresses or, <laughs> you know, all this stuff. But there was also a real respect and fascination with them. And uh, they took them seriously, even though the headlines, and by the way, the reporters don't write the headlines, you know, <laughs> the editors do. Um, there was a real enthusiasm and an excitement and, as I said, an admiration and uh I got excited seeing all this stuff. And I guess what's pretty clear is that all across the country from the 10s and 20s on, women were trying to start these things. Whether there was one person or two people in the state, you know, or one person or two people at a school, um, women were trying to find each other, network, give each other advice, give each other support, just know that the others existed, you know. Um, it's been going on a really long time. It, something happened in 1949, 48, 49, 50, that brought everything together. There was a critical mass. And there was a critical mass in certain places, you know, in Philadelphia. There was certainly a critical mass in New York City. So when you took women who were had been at Cooper Union for years, but suddenly there was a critical... Actually, my mother was the first woman to graduate from the Knight Electrical Engineering Program at at Cooper, so I don't want to overstate how many women there were. She was (laughs) the only woman in most of her classes. But there was, over those years, and these are, of course, these are post-war years um, that played into it to some extent. These were the children of immigrants coming of age in this sort of great hopefulness after the war. And I think there just were enough women who not only had gotten these degrees, but were using the degrees. I mean, because that's one thing you realize about some of the early women is that they got these degrees. Nobody would hire them. 
or they would only be hired for things that involved very little of their skills. I mean, there were obviously exceptions to that. But there was a critical mass. If, if you start looking through the newspaper articles, you see that all these things are forming and that men are who run companies are saying, we need women. You know, and there's a lot of fussing and bussing about why aren't women, you know, signing up and other women saying, well, we are. We're not being taken, you know. There is that sense that they weren't being taken seriously, the whole issue of women having children and all that. It, it's still an issue. But I, I, that's one thing I came away from today and yesterday with is that all these factors have been simmering for a century. And something about that moment, uh, not just in New York City, around the country, but my experience of it is New York, children of immigrants, educated women, husbands who are supportive, able to put off having children for at least some years, as, as many years as they wanted because birth control was available, bringing to child rearing some of that same sense of we're going to do it a different way. I think it's fascinating because there are, you could almost see that it could have happened any number of times before and I, I'd have to know a lot more, and I won't, <laughs> to figure out why it didn't. But I think a critical mass, a critical moment, uh, a freeing up, uh, a moment of great freedom and, and ex expectation. And women just felt like they could go for it in ways that I just don't think they as many w felt before. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um. Do you have any closing thoughts you want to add? I'm just really grateful. I'm going to start crying. But um, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just grateful for the SWE. I feel like it gave my mother. I mean, she joined the SWE, helped form it, um, when she had just gotten married. So, but it she started getting active in doing things for the SWE when she had moved to Little Red House at 324 Jackson Avenue in Scotch Plains. And I think it gave her a sense of connection at a time when she otherwise would have felt very isolated. And um, a cohesion and a, a sense of Sisterhood is such a funny word, but I'm going to say it, sisterhood. And for me growing up and for my brothers and for my sister, we were so proud of my mother. And we were so proud of all those women. I mean, we just got a big kick. I mean, we had those picnics because our mothers were the, <laughs> the, I mean, our fathers were pretty bright. But it was, it was our mothers who were the shining stars. And the men readily admitted that. They admitted that their wives were the shining stars. And, and to grow up with that is pretty wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much. I eagerly await to uh, to read your book when you get it all put together. Okay, I, I'm, I'm eagerly <laughs> waiting for that too. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Oh, Troy, you've been great. Thank you. Oh, that was a very cool story. That was some great stories, Troy. I thought that was a lot of fun. As we just learned, the Society of Women Engineers Archives is here at the Walter P. Ruther Library. Troy, what if some researchers come here and want to look at the SWE archives? What are some of the cool collections they can look at? 
Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you liked those stories, you know, at the core is the Society of Women Engineers records, which is hundreds of boxes and lots of digital files. And it covers SWE's history from before its founding all the way through the present. Then there's also the Society of Women Engineers publications, the old journal, the old newsletter, the current magazine that helped you to trace the history of SWE itself and what was going on in the engineering world at the time. And uh, we also have three separate oral history projects with interviews with over 80 different women, including a two-hour interview that I did with Alexis about her mother, Evelyn Jetter's career and life. Uh, We have the records of the American Society of Women Engineers and Architects, which was an organization that was founded and dissolved, as far as I can tell, in 1920, based on a survey that was conducted by two female engineering students at the University of Colorado. And it's probably the best record of early women engineers in the country. And we have thousands of photographs. So if you would like to see any of those, come visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks, Joy. You're welcome, Dan. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. This is a lot of pressure. It's much easier just sitting here making snarky comments at you. I know. I'm in the hot seat now. I know. Man, isn't it? It is. It's hard. Okay, we have to do silence. Now? Yes. You want to do silence now? Now. Okay, we'll do it now. All right. Let's let's be quiet. I'm trying to be, but you keep talking. Sure. All right. Sure. All right. Whatever. You're fine. You're fine. Okay. That was perhaps some of our finest work. I think so. (laughs) The back and forth, the love that we're showing on (laughs) this podcast will go on for centuries.